but we know it's a trap. But we don't know it's an ocean. Hello, and welcome to the Newton Knowledge Podcast. My name is Mark Singer, partner of Newton One Advisors, and I'm joined by our managing partner, Steve Target. The Newton Knowledge Podcast will provide meaningful content to our valued advisor community and anyone who's interested in learning more about sophisticated insurance-related topics focused on estate planning and executive benefits. Our discussions will deliver unique insights into the people, processes, and products that make our industry so critical. Newton One is a national life insurance planning firm delivering customized insurance solutions structured to help clients and their advisors engaged in solving estate planning, wealth transfer, business succession, and executive benefits challenges. We are a member of the M Financial Group, which grants our clients access to the nation's elite carriers and exclusive products available only through our network. Mark, you and I have, have said in the past that we try and not put a timestamp uh, on these podcasts so that we can play them for many, many years, and folks don't really know when we recorded them. But I will say that we're sitting here on a lovely spring day, in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we're so happy to be with both Scott Radcliffe and Scott Berkey. So could you just take a, a minute or two here and give us a brief overview of EHD? Th thanks, Steve. Um, e EHD, or Engel, Hambright, and Babies, uh, we're in the insurance space. We're a privately held 127-year-old um, firm headquartered in Lancaster with other regional offices throughout the Commonwealth. Um, we serve businesses and individuals, but uh, businesses or individuals come to us when they're frustrated with the cost and or complexity of their insurance and risk management program. We serve uh, thousands of entities uh, throughout the, the, the region, and uh, we help them to um, uh, reduce and close coverage gaps. Uh, set up appropriate funding mechanisms for the risk transfer, and we bring different services, that's a whole other conversation, but different services to them so that they can focus on not their insurance program, but their, their businesses and what's important to them, which is keeping their, their businesses and their employees moving forward. Thank you. Scott, thanks for being with us this morning. Could you just spend a, a couple minutes and tell us a little bit more about the High Center? Yeah, hey, thanks, Steve. Glad to be here this morning. Uh, really thankful for the opportunity. So, the High Center for Family Business, or the High Center as we go by now, was founded in 1995. Um, we're based out of Elizabethtown College here in Lancaster, PA, and it was founded by Dale High and a number of business leaders that just felt that family businesses needed some additional resources. Um, so here you fast forward to 2023, we've got 185 member companies across Lancaster, York, Dauphin, Lebanon, Berks, and Lehigh, and in Lehigh Valley. We run about 30 peer groups for our CEOs and key executives. We also bring in nationally recognized speakers throughout the year uh, and one big name speaker um, as well in March for our annual business forum. So we just hosted Steve Wozniak, co-founder of Apple. Uh, we've had Alan Mulally, who was CEO of Ford. We've had Patrick Lencioni, a uh, great known business leader. And last year, we were lucky enough to get Jim Collins, who wrote Good to Great, a number of other books to come in. So uh, we really, you know, beyond that, um, our speakers are one part of what we do, but the other piece is uh, we try and create awareness through our best practice and exit planning surveys. So a number of our businesses, you know, as our CEO, Mike, Mike uh, Mitchell would say, they don't know what they don't know. And our best practice survey helps illuminate some areas that um, they might just need to start to prioritize. So, so for education, I mentioned, you know, we also have bring in speakers throughout the year. We've got folks like Deanne Turner, uh, former VP of HR for Chick-fil-A speaking for us in May coming up. So, and then the last piece is our peer groups. Uh, they run six times a year for four hours. And that's really, um, uh, you know, where folks get, you know, 90 minutes to process any business issues with their peers. Uh, and frankly, that's that's the really, um, 
that's really the high value portion of the meeting. We also have CEOs and key execs review their financials. Um, so again, they're getting an opportunity to meet with their peers, meet with some local facilitators that are experts in their field. And um, quite honestly, you know, we're really fortunate to do this work thanks to partners like EH&D and others in our markets. Uh, we've got sponsors, you know, who really kind of give us the support we need in each of our regions and they act as the experts. Um, so if we get an issue that we're not as familiar with or it might be something new that's hitting the market, we try to get try not to get out over our skis on things and we'll pull on our partners where we need to. So they'll come in and then um, really help us give us that expertise that we need. And, you know, I valued that when I was with Rhodes, Rhodes Energy as a member 10 years ago. I was COO for the company and in a key exec peer group and just really found the experience um, really valuable. And, um, you know, fast forward for me 10 years later. Uh, now I get to help facilitate those meetings and take all of our resources out to the business community. So we're going to start off um, today's podcast by just setting some foundational statistics about the topic and the title, which is the value and importance of family and privately held businesses. So let's lay some statistics uh, about privately and family held businesses. In the United States, Privately held and family-owned businesses provide 65% of all wages. 87% of the businesses in the United States are family-owned for a total of 32.4 million family businesses in the United States. 54% of the U.S. GDP is generated by family businesses, which is a $7.7 .7 trillion contribution. And 59% of the U.S. private workforce is employed by family businesses providing 83.3 million jobs. So that's one of the reasons why family owned and privately owned businesses are so important. Additionally, one of the things we're gonna talk about today is succession planning. It's something that's near and dear, I think, to all of our hearts and, and businesses for that matter, and to our clients, particularly in the, obviously in the, the privately held and family owned business. So these are numbers that you may have heard before, but even though nearly 70% of family businesses would like to pass their business on to the next generation, only 30% actually will be successful at transitioning to the next generation. 12% will still be viable into the third generation. And only 3% of all family businesses operating at the fourth generation level and beyond. Now, those are countrywide statistics. And I, I do wonder sometimes how regionalized those are. In other words, I don't have these numbers. I don't know if anybody else does off the top of their head. But I do wonder, you know, in certain areas, in the Lancaster, York, Lehigh Valley, Berks County area specifically, I bet those numbers are a little bit better. And one of the reasons may be because there's organizations like the High Center uh, or others that are interested in maintaining and helping family-owned, privately-owned businesses. But there's probably other things as well. Um, maybe it's work ethic. Maybe it's family dynamics. Maybe it's kitchen table conversations that go on between generations and, and help these family-owned businesses transitions. I don't know, but we might explore some of those things today to try and determine um, what's going on there. So Scott Berkey, from your perspective, what can be done to help the transition and the successful succession planning with family-owned businesses? Yeah, it's a critical topic, like you mentioned, with eight out of 10 businesses that are family-owned uh, and frankly, we probably drive by so many family businesses and privately held businesses every day, um, and we really don't think about it. 60% of the workers that are out there are working for family-owned businesses, and I think about um, what can be done around planning, and, and frankly, what we find at the high centers, it's all about those conversations. And sometimes it's things that um, 
business leaders are so business, business, busy working in their business, uh, they don't always take the time to work on the business. And the dynamics of these businesses as they're growing, um, and again, what we've seen the last couple of years, we've all faced it, um, supply chain, uh, we've faced issues with inflation, hiring, uh, the pandemic. Um, so really all those pieces, uh, and then culture, as we talked about, is a big part of it. How do you build that culture? There's so many pieces that come together and, and really it's all about people. Uh, it's also about process and it's really about planning, um, but it's also about taking care of your employees so that they know long-term there's a plan for this company that's gonna take it to the next generation, whether that's the second, third, fourth, or sometimes even up to like a sixth generation, like some of the businesses locally. So all the pieces need to come together for it to work well. And Steve, I, I don't know that um, I have specific statistics to this, but I, I think regionally there is a, a greater uh, importance placed on, on private ownership and, and the family dynamic of such. It could be rooted in caring about our communities, uh, caring more deeply about the employees that have helped build those family businesses over time and, and generations. And again, I can't quantify that, but I, I see it as a real thing in our community that's that's valued and, and hopefully will continue to be valued as we move forward. I do too. I think that's when you travel into this this community here, to me it becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly. Um, there's, there's a real, as you said, a real loyalty to employees of companies um, to make sure that they're, you know, they're achieving what they should achieve professionally and personally, but also to have them connected to the companies with which you're working. And, and there's that connection there that, that's built. Um, that's a little bit of maybe the art and the science of what we'll talk about today. How, how do you do that? And it's a little bit of both, right? I mean, it's, it's some planning, but sometimes it's just philosophy and, and, and culture. Culture. I keep hearing the word culture, not just here all over. And would you say the word or the phrase culture has the, the meaning around it has changed post pandemic or is it relatively the same or maybe it's based on the region? But with the companies you're dealing with, has culture changed? Yeah, Mark, I think for us at the high center, what's really shifted um, is the culture. Uh, it's almost always been an internal thing, right? Um, but, you know, once you're in a company, everything you do, you know, best places to work, you come up with these phrases and language that define the culture. Uh, now it's shifting to almost more of a recruiting tool. So, you, you know, you want to be able to tell people not just what the job is um, and what the responsibilities are, but what we're really seeing from our partners and um, they're starting to encourage people with job posts to tell the story of the company and, you know, share some of that depth uh, and the phrases and languages, the phrases and language, frankly, that describe the company, uh, putting that into the post as they look to attract talent. So, you know, it's not just about retaining the talent you have today. So I think it's starting to move beyond the four walls out into the um, outside perspective of candidates as well. I, I think it's it's changing, too, generationally, uh, what that word, to your point, Mark, you know, what does the word culture mean? And uh, younger employees getting involved in organizations are paying attention uh, more to culture and also what those communities are doing or what those companies are doing within their communities. That That's a big part of why they may choose to go to work for an organization. It's, it's not just about the pay scale. Of course, flexibility of work, depending on the, uh, the company and, and remote work has been a, a, an evolving thing. But uh, um, making sure they're working for a company that cares about the community in which they're, they're based is, I think, more important than ever in recruiting. So I, I wonder... Um, I don't know if I ever thought about this before, but I do wonder with, you know, we hear these generational differences between, between workers and employees. 
I'm not convinced there is generational differences, by the way. I, I, you know, I, I find older um, folks that don't like to work a lot and like to work at home. And then I find older folks that love to work a lot and don't want to work at home. You know, we keep hearing about the younger generation that wants to sit at home in their sweatpants and sit in front of a computer and not really work. And there's probably that same factor in, in younger folks as there is in older folks. So I, for one, am not convinced that it's necessarily a generational thing. That's probably a completely different podcast. But what I do wonder, <laughs> correct? <laughs> what I do wonder is, um, with the connection that the um, that the newest generation uh, has with companies and longevity and making a difference, if they have that connection with their company then I would presume the likelihood of that company being successful and being um, kind of uh, in an environment or being encouraged to almost remain the same. I'm not saying, you know, don't grow and don't change. You know, we all, we all need to do that. But contributing to a company um, with that connection could, in fact, help the succession planning with privately held and family-owned businesses. Does that make sense, or am I? Is that too far of a stretch? No, I don't. I don't think that's a stretch. I mean, we were fortunate to have Hayden Shaw speak on five generations in the workforce for us in January, and as part of our speaker series. And um, and you know, I think you're right, Steve. That that people think that they're um, defined differences in these groups. And Hayden pointed out some nuances. Um, you know, and the bottom line is for CEOs and people in our peer groups, you know, how much they care about their employees really comes through. You know, I've worked in publicly traded companies where the stock price and quarterly earnings drive decisions, and it becomes very short-term focused. And uh, these leaders of these family and privately held businesses are very focused on how they create this caring culture. They really want people to work there. The, and, you know, they struggle, gosh, sometimes um, just to, to make really hard decisions as the company scales. Um, maybe an individual doesn't have the skill set to get to the next level. Uh, and when some of those issues come up in our peer groups, a lot of those are where we help CEOs start to think about how do they maintain the care, you know, the emotional and mental care, but the dignity of the person who maybe, you know, might have worked for their dad for years um, and maybe find a way to have them stay with the company in a different role, um, but still stay with the company. So that individual maybe wanted to retire there uh, and they can find ways to make that happen, which is really one of the, the awesome things about family and privately held businesses. So. Yeah, it's a very different mindset than maybe some other companies where it may be all about dollars in the bottom line. So I think the caring piece is even more critical today. And, you know, Scott, I'm curious, you know, about what you guys are seeing on the EH&D side. Um, we, we, we certainly see it. And uh, it doesn't mean that you want to uh, uh, you know, tolerate or celebrate mediocrity. There, there needs to be productivity, but a, a, a concern about making sure that that person is cared for and in the right role within the company for the company's future as well as your own. Uh, yeah, I, I think you're right, Scott. Uh, a, a privately held company is going to pay more attention to that. than, a, than a, It's not that publicly traded companies are, are bad. Uh, that's you know, also a huge part of our economy. But with what we see, yeah, there, there's more employee care. And one of the big things I always look at, I say, would say one of the differences from privately held um, to public is is the why, and maybe you know why do we do things the way we do them, or they've always been done that way for generations, um, and maybe there's the ability to have more say in, in regards to the why or question that with a privately held business, maybe. But uh, my question to you, Scott Berkey, is is why does the why does the High Center do what they do in regards to helping leaders and privately held businesses continue? 
Thanks for asking, Mark. I mean, it's really Dale High who helped found the High Center in 1995. Uh, he and a number of business owners, you know, through Elizabethtown College where we're located, um, you know, now we come all the way up to 2023, where we're one of the oldest and largest family business centers in the country, you know, right here in Lancaster County, PA, uh, serving the five or six counties around us. So, you know, for us, it's all about creating a legacy. And so the legacy could be uh, the transition to a next generation. Uh, the legacy could be, you know, it might be time to sell the company. Uh, the legacy might be, you know, moving into an ESOP. But um, and maybe there's a plan that's been part of the owner's mindset. So, you know, it's really um, allows us to play a lot of different roles in that journey for companies uh, through the services we offer from our peer groups to our speaker series, through our surveys. Uh, but at the end, it's all about helping these companies be better and stronger and ideally around a lot longer. I mean, our model is very similar. We, have, we play a small piece in the, the legacy planning and continuation planning of whether it be a business acquisition or just businesses continuing, um, mainly the insurance piece. If it's from an executive benefit standpoint, uh, deferred comp planning, or even repurchase obligations from a liability standpoint for ESOPs. But w whatever it may be, having that conversation and, and giving the, the individual or the group of individuals who've created the, this business a, a say and an opportunity on how do we continue this in their fashion is something that we take pride in. We want to make sure we do that uh, appropriately. And I know you and your team uh, have similar resources. Yeah, and yeah we, we do, Mark. And we don't get involved uh, you know, directly in the succession planning at EHD. We're there as an insurance partner, as a business partner, really, to help with their, their overall insurance program. Um, our vested interest in, in this space, and one of the reasons we, we joined and partnered with the High Center last year, is just helping to bring our privately held and family-owned companies more resources to help them continue as such. Uh, we get involved in employee culture. We get involved in wellness programs, occupational health and safety, and the, you know, the increased productivity and profitability that comes with the company based on those resources. Um, but, uh, you know, that's kind of where our role stops. We do want to see them perpetuate um, internally through what other mechanism, whatever mechanism, whether it's a generational transition or an ESOP or you know, whatever that solution is for them. But we, we want to see them stay uh, privately held. We want to see them stay in our communities, continuing to contribute for generations beyond. And an EHD as a privately held 127-year-old um, enterprise, um, you know, we, we focus on all of those same things within our own employee culture. And this podcast isn't about us, but we, we live this um, in our communities alongside with the other clients that we serve. So we're, we're just like them in that regard. There's a pride factor there, isn't there, with, that you see with privately owned and family owned businesses? And uh, what's your experience been with that, working with, with um, companies? You know, you, you see that with the ownership, you see that as um, something that either they started or previous generations started and then the employees, like, what does that feel like? For me, in a, in a company like Rhodes Energy, you know, it takes on two fields. One uh, is there, there's a deep sense of responsibility, I would, I would almost say, um, but there's also a huge amount of humility. So with the leader of Rhodes Energy, Mike DeBerdine, we were doing some amazing things. It was hard for me to convince Mike to start telling more of our story out to the public because, as, you know, I saw it as a sales and marketing um, awareness building uh, channel or tool that could lift the company up and really differentiate us, um, you know, from the other companies that around us. Um, but, you know, I see, you know, that in the high center, we see that a lot with companies as well, all these companies that we might pass by, 
we absolutely have no idea the amazing things they're doing because they're so very humble about it. And some of that's the culture of, of the region we're in. Um, but I also think it's the culture of family-owned businesses as well. So I think it's a part of what is there. It's what makes them special uh, because they don't need to stand out. Um, they don't need to stand on the top of the hill, but they are doing, you know, they're doing some amazing things for the community. So I'd like to get back to Scott's point. I mean, when you think about 127 years, you know, I'm a history minor from Penn State and all the things that happened in that journey I mean, we know what just happened in the last three or four years, but in the hundred years that Rhodes Energy from 1917 until now, I mean, everything and having, you know, one of the leaders to have, um, have to navigate the friends and the partners that are next to them, um, between, you know, honestly, it's the partners that are around you, they end up becoming your friends uh, as much as they're a partner. And for the record, I was not there in 1896 when the firm was founded. <laughs> yeah, we, we say frequently, we you know, we do business with our friends and our business partners also become our friends. Let's talk about a couple maybe case studies that, we, that we've seen or, or worked on um, over the years with family-owned businesses. And, and I'll, I'll kick one off and just see, you know, how you guys would respond to this. It's, it's very common, at least from our perspective, to work with um, family-owned businesses you know, as you as we go down generations, not all of the children necessarily want to work in the business. And um, so, if we you know if we make up a case, if we say, you know, we're maybe at G two, and uh, mom's running the business, and there's three children, and one of the three is in the business, and the other two aren't. You know, how do they transition that business from G two to G three, or? Do they transition the business from G2 to G3? It might be the size of the business. It might be what type of business it's in. So that's one question. And that, Scott Berkey, I think that's probably something you guys help or at least talk through with your clients or hear about quite a bit. So let, let's, let's address that topic. And then um, from the estate planning perspective, I mean, there's, there's all sorts of other things to talk about. Again, probably not for today's podcast, but just from an, an awareness standpoint. You know, th- there's an asset there that will be transitioned to maybe, again, one of the three children that could be the majority of the net worth of that family. And so how do they um, equalize if that's important to them? And sometimes it is, and sometimes it's not, but how do they equalize the inheritance from G2 to G3? But let's go first to the, you know, how do they deal with that transition? I think, Steve, you know, the one thing, again, back to the high center and the things we offer, you know, our peer groups, our speaker series and the surveys, our surveys are really good at, um, you know, there's kind of a section around family. Uh, the survey asks a lot of questions about the conversations families are having, you know, encouraging those uh, families um, you know, to be involved in the communities. And you know, there's those great partners that facilitate those discussions. Um, again, they're deep. Um, they're sometimes challenging. I mean, when you think about an owner of a company who's been running it for years, yeah, maybe he has three sons and one of them has the talent to actually run the company. Um, you know, I can't imagine having that conversation with family. Um, I've had those conversations with corporate employees, and you know, and that's very different. Uh, and then the flip side is to follow your thought through it is um, you've got one sibling who maybe isn't even in the business, doesn't want to be in the business, but from a wealth transfer standpoint, there need to be considerations. Um, how does that make its way through in terms of parity and fairness? Um, because those circles all overlap, you know, the business, the family, and the ownership. 
So ownership sometimes stands out, you know, where you can be an owner and not work in the business. And I think those are those important conversations that need to be had. Um, and we try to do that through our exit planning survey with a number of members. And, you know, we'll ask somebody is more than 50% of their net worth in the business or outside. Uh, and questions like that are really about getting to start thinking about the generational wealth transfer. Um, you know, and then the last couple of questions of our best practice survey, where we ask, you know, um, do you believe the company could withstand the, the untimely demise of the owner? Um, you know, and you're not just asking family members. Um, you're asking the leadership team that question, and, you know, you, you can get that answer. You know, we ask them on a scale of one to seven. So there might be two people that are two saying, hey, I'm not sure. Um, and then you've got one at maybe a three or four, and then maybe obviously the CEO is at the very top of that scale um, who is very comfortable with, um, you know, knowing what's going to happen because they're planning it. But quite honestly, that's where the conversation you know, starts to create those conversations that leads to the planning that then needs to happen and create a plan, uh, you know, document a plan for, for these companies. Could we do a little bit of a deeper dive into the peer groups? The peer groups that you work with fascinate me. Talk about the structure of those and, and maybe what some of the outcomes are. And perhaps you, you don't even know what the outcomes are going to be other than putting folks together in a room four times a year, six times a year. T tell us about the peer groups. Yeah, our peer groups, um, we run CEO peer groups. Um, we run key executive peer groups right now. And we've got 30 of those running across the markets we serve. And, you know, they're four hours. They run six times a year. And we have people review their financials. So there's a financial accountability they're talking about their revenues, their profits to their peers. I mean, we have confidentiality agreements signed, so everybody can do that. But um, the remarkable piece is the last 90 minutes where um, they process any issue they're facing. So uh, we recently had an issue where somebody was looking at how, you know, how to do a transition, you know, kind of looking at like, hey, it's it, me, myself, and you know, I'll just say my siblings have been running the company um, out there, you know, pretty generic names. So I don't want to get too specific, but they realized they moved to needed to move out of the ownerships, uh, move into the ownership circle from being in the day-to-day -day part of running the business. Um, what that meant is they had to go out and hire people for to run marketing, to run operations, uh, to run some of the functional like HR, finance, and IT. Um, so those are the kind of topics that come up pretty frequently in our peer groups. So put that issue out there, uh, kind of with the hey, I'm I'm not sure what to do here. And uh, as far as the next step, I know I need someone different in the role. Um, you know, it's, I'm sure, you know, other people probably see a lot, but it's very hard. So what happens is the peers give them the confidence to give them the, and the language sometimes to let them move out on the decision. And you know, I would just say the reassurance that it's okay to go have that conversation. I've had those before. Um, and, you know, I've had this happen to me before. And that kind of camaraderie um, and that kind of willingness to say, look, kindred spirits, I've been through this, uh, really helps with some of the tougher decisions that these leaders of companies need to make. Because um, honestly, they probably um, would hold off on doing it if, it if they were left up to their own. They wouldn't act nearly as quick. And uh, quite honestly, going back to legacy, I mean, it would probably slow things down in terms of that advancing the legacy and, and possibly the, the profitability of the company. Well, I, th I think, too, bringing the, the peers together, that camaraderie is a good word that you use, Scott, but it also puts them in a position where they can be comfortable kind of challenging their own thinking to get outside of the box and get outside of what the constraints of their own business or family dynamic might be and force them to 
you know, look in the mirror to ask some of the tough questions that sometimes uh, they really need to address as it relates to family and how to how to continue the business. Yeah, I'll, I'll tack on um, a little to that piece, Steve. Um, about a year ago, we were in a peer group in, in a region that will remain nameless, right? Um, but we had the CEO talking about someone who just didn't fit their culture and they were, they were hitting the numbers. I mean, so performance-wise, uh, they looked like they were, you know, they were on. You know, they're, they look like an A player, but... Um, how they were getting it done just didn't really align with uh, the company's culture. And, you know, the CEO ended up leaving the meeting after he brought the issue to his peers. And you know, he made the really tough decision to let the person go. And that's hard. It's very difficult, especially in some of the family out and even privately held with smaller organizations. Um, but they realize it's it's really how, how important culture and sustaining the culture is uh, to these family businesses and privately held companies. I would imagine there's certain industries that lend themselves um, to to better succession and multiple generational planning, and and multiple generational is is not just family. You know, if I'm if I'm G two in my business, uh, Mark may be G three. Hopefully he is, um, and then there'll be a G four and a G five. In the insurance planning business, it's, it's very important, and, and you've demonstrated this with 127 years at EHD. It's very important for our clients to know that there is a formalized succession plan within our businesses so they'll, they'll be serviced for multiple generations. So I think there are some businesses that lend themselves to that. And then there's other businesses that, you know, we'll work with a startup company um, and we'll be insuring the key executives with life insurance uh, to protect for the premature death of one of those executives or putting together certain what we will call our golden handcuff plans, you know, certain, certain programs to help keep executives and, and folks on board. But from the beginning, they're saying our plan is to go public or to be acquired by a private equity firm. And that's, that's very different, but I, I do kind of think that it's, it's also industry specific. W would you agree with that? I mean, as you're bringing people into to your peer groups, um, are, are you, do you see that within the groups even? Yeah. I mean, for us at the high center, you know, people are joining more so because they're trying to sustain their business, right? What tends to happen is they get an unsolicited offer or they work through their plan. Uh, they realize they don't necessarily have a succession plan or their succession plan is going to be having to sell the company. Uh, or in some cases, and this is a tough one, but, but they get through it, you know, maybe hiring an outside CEO is, you know, the end result too. So and I think that's what we were talking about earlier this morning. Um, that's where some of the insurance products and some of the structuring can be really helpful because that's that's tough for family business to now listen to someone who's not a family member advising and pretty much leading the company. And we've seen it work out really well for a number of our members. You know, a very tough transition, but they've gotten through it, and it's been very effective. Well, the other other challenge with the uh, the generational transfer is, is not just it's not only in the ownership structure, but it's what's the actual business doing and how is it adapting to a, a new market. And you know, we saw businesses pivot during COVID because they they had to. But even beyond that, businesses need to continue to evolve to be relevant in the market. And maybe what G three is doing is entirely different from what G one is doing. I mean, look at the the high companies as a great testament to that from a little welding shop to a, you know, what, whatever, I won't say multinational, but a great big thing. Mark and I talk about this quite a bit and it's, you know, it's that adapting and adopting philosophy and, you know, the generations that preceded us, um, if they're still involved in the business, they need to be, I, I think they really need to be willing to adapt 
and adopt new ideas, new strategies, look at things differently. Um, and, and part of that, you know, is having the, um, maybe the self-confidence, I think, of, of feeling uh, strong enough about who you are and what your business is, but also trusting the, f- the future employees and the future leaders. Scott Berkey, if, if you were to, um, I'll put you on the spot with this one. And I, I would think that if, if you and your organization, the High Center, can get involved earlier with companies and start helping them think through or set up uh, or have conversations um, rather than later, that would be better. If you had a new family-owned business that came to you, and I say new meaning they're successful, they're profitable, they're, they're doing well, what couple things would you tell them to do or to put into place that would help them succeed versus coming down the road and said, I wish you would have thought about this, or I wish you would have put this in place. Are there, are there a couple things? Yeah, that's a great question because it hits a lot of different spots. Um, over the years, I've watched a lot of these companies come into the high center and they get stronger and better. Um, they take the survey and, you know, always like Mike Mitchell, our leaders, you know, Mike says, hey, leaders don't always know. They don't know what they don't know. And uh, Mike found that when he ran his company as well. So I think that sense of wonder and a kind of um, willingness to be vulnerable. Uh, and that's why I feel like we started to do this. Now, the surveys we do right up front, uh, that's the way we get to know our members fast. Um, but it's also to get to evaluate issues for them pretty quickly and prioritize them. And again, it's not things that they don't know, but it's things they just really haven't kind of prioritized because they're running a business. I mean, the day-to-day just jumps up and there's so much to do. But uh, I think, you know, assessing your leadership team, understanding who your key players are, um, those that you want to hang on to and, and figure out the, the conversations you want to have with them and the plans you put in place for them. Um, you know, you, you don't ever forget, like when I started working for Rhodes Energy and Mike DeBerdheim, I asked, you know, he asked me flat out, he told me up front, he goes, hey, look, I'm going to hire um, and you're going to be here at least three years, right? And I thought that level set um, was just really kind of how really helpful in how we were going to go after things. And then after three years in, he's like, hey, you know, we talked, you know, are you going to be here another five or six years? And I said, you know, I might, I might probably make another three. And, and that, you know, it felt um, a little awkward, but the trust we had, I felt like I could be candid with him and, you know, because we had built that trust. And that's what happens in family-owned and privately-held business. So uh, I think overall it's about getting your leadership team tuned up, uh, making sure, as Scott said, you know, having the right people in the right positions is absolutely critical. And, uh, you know, you might have to make some tougher decisions you've avoided, um, but that's what's going to get you that next level of performance, uh, the bottom line, you know, here, timeline, uh, bottom line results. But um, it's got it's got to, you know, add up to all that working out for your business. And I mean, you've worked, you know, you've worked with a ton of companies that we have also worked with as well, Scott. Yeah, I, th- I think the um, the recognition that there should be a plan and the, the importance of that um, and having the self-awareness to realize that you can't necessarily just do it. Um, on your own, you know, you, you've run the business well, it's quote unquote, taking care of itself, but the, the transition to the next generation doesn't, doesn't just take care of itself. So the, um, the humility, the vulnerability, uh, the, that word that you use, Scott, I think, I think is, is good. And just um, being, being thoughtful about what you want in terms of transitioning the company. I might add this one piece, Steve, um, one of our M&A partners has expressed, um, that consistently, you know, whether it's the High Center for Family Business, uh, the Delaware Valley Business Center, uh, or something like the Entrepreneurial Operating System, you know, he has seen um, 
increased results uh, in transactions for companies that have, um, to Scott's point, um, brought in experts beside them. So whether that's just the performance of the company increases or, hey, actually, when I go to sell it, the multiples are higher, I think Scott's right. Um, and that's why you know, we work with a number of sponsors or partners in all of our markets um, where you know, they're in there you know, from an accounting, legal, finance, insurance, um, you know, kind of investment planning. So we've got all those partners around us. Um, so we know when issues come up, we can direct people to the right players in the community. You mentioned earlier, and it's so true. I mean, you look back at EHD over 127 years, and there's been, I presume, there's been good times for the company. There's been great times for the company. And then there's been other times where, you know, everyone had to work maybe a little bit harder. Oh, Steve, every day is a good day in the insurance business. What are you, what are you talking about? <laughs> Um, but I think as you're building these companies, um, you know, if, if the right structure is to put into place and the right leadership and you have the people in the right seats, you know, working through those more difficult times just tend to strengthen the desire, I would think, to remain together and to remain private and to remain within the family. And um, I, I do agree with you, Scott Burke, with your comment about there's there's some humility and some humbleness of, of owners of companies as they transition. You know, some don't want to kind of go back and relive those things and, and pat themselves on the back for, for getting through those. Um, but that's, you know, that's what strengthens that internal resilience of companies to, to stay in that environment and to stay privately held. Let's talk about maybe some of the, um, some of the, the risks because the three of us are in the insurance business. There are some risks that we address with our clients uh, on a regular basis. And what we do on the life insurance side is a little different than the property and casualty employee benefits. But, you know, there's, there's certainly some um, death and disability risks that we can insure. Um, and we, we do talk about and frequently implement with our clients. There's risks of um, not having capital available for future obligations. You know, that's kind of what, what we would consider fundamental financial planning with regard to uh, having assets set aside. There's other risks uh, that are, are the retention risks. So, you know, we talk to our, our companies about you've got a key executive or a key leader and you really want him or her to remain here for a, a period of time. Sometimes it's defined, sometimes it's not defined. Scott Berkey, have you seen any, any plans in the marketplace that have helped with that retention piece? Yeah, I think particularly, Steve, as you mentioned, where it's non-family, you know, the right family, you know, people have a deeper commitment and maybe the opposite of their part of the family. They've been around for generations. They've heard about all over, you know, over the dinner table. Um, so I think when you get that non-family executive into such a key leadership role, uh, whether it's driving operations, it's driving sales uh, or finance, uh, when you look at a roadmap, it's funny, you know, we talked family businesses, only about 17% have a strategic plan in place. So, so planning is critical. Uh, they think this through, you know, you have to mention, you know, you want all these people around the table. Uh, if you're talented and, and one of your, you know, our HR partners in town says that somebody's probably calling on that talent right now. So whatever you can do to bolster those relationships, um, whether it's financial or it's culture, um, you've got to build that. Um, but I think, you know, we talk a lot about, um, and with some of our members, this idea of phantom stock uh, or some, some type of key insurance that you mentioned a little bit earlier, but putting some of those additional pieces in place that are more long-term focused, um, 
than you know just a normal annual com um, compensation or maybe a bonus tied to performance for the year, which which are wonderful, right? But um, you, you know, I get all that coming together. But you know, it it, it needs to be. When I was with DNA Communications, like we had a long term incentive plan, so I knew annual salary. I knew if we had a good year financially, what my bonus might look like. But I also knew. And this is what kept me involved in the company for a number of years is, you know, there was kind of a longer term uh, opportunity to, um, you know, take on some additional stock and, and build some personal wealth. So um, that was really a differentiator for me. And um, you know, I knew I wasn't going to leave unless the company was sold because, you know, I was in a great spot. I had a great job and I knew the shares uh, I was going to receive every couple of years um, when they vested. And so uh, unfortunately, you know, we just weren't able to grow fast enough and end up being acquired in 2009. So I, you know, I kind of know what that felt like. And I think it can be really beneficial for those non-family members uh, to make sure that it really hang, helps anchor their loyalty and, and moves that one more notch up, right? And I think, again, from a planning perspective, um, Scott Radcliffe, some of, the, some of the, the solutions that EHD puts in front of their clients, if they're not put into place, can really damage a company. You know, I, I think, Steve, it's it's twofold. It's it's protection against the unexpected and unforeseen sudden, you know, tragedy or catastrophe that, that can happen, that can totally, um, you know, pull the rug out, for, out from under the leadership group within a company or the family or and just, and unfortunately, as a byproduct of our business, we end up hearing about unexpected bad things that happen. So, a failure to, to contemplate those things and plan for them is one thing, but there's also the, the longer term. So ev everyone's there and happy and there's no sudden tragedy, but there's just a, a long-term, you know, financial bleed out of the company um, and, and or a failure to properly uh, put aside the capital that's needed to transition. And, and we see, unfortunately, sometimes companies selling because they have to, not because it was a part of their ultimate uh, game plan, and but they're in a spot where they've, they've got no other option, and they do fine. Nobody's setting up a GoFundMe account for them, but they uh, they just didn't do the necessary long-term planning that was there to help the company, and, and that's, that's always kind of sad. Has the landscape or discussions changed on executive retention plans in your peer groups coming out of a pandemic? Yeah, Mark, I'd say the shift we've seen is addressing the fact that um, I don't have the right people in the senior most seats. Um, so for years, maybe we got by, um, we went through this person, you know, they were doing an okay job, you know, this guy's in the plant. Um, they're not failing at their job. They're just, you know, they've been with the company maybe for a period of time and they just don't know any different. Um, so a lot of times, you know, we'll encourage the next generous, you know, and so we're kind of thinking about this, like to go work somewhere else, right? Um, get those experiences and then um, come back into the family as a best practice. Um, you know, coming right into the business really is not a best practice. And I think that's something these, these family, you know, privately held businesses are realizing the world's moving at a lot faster pace. And sometimes you have maybe a controller kind of going back to that staff. The controller's done a wonderful job for years, but, you know, the company is at a point where maybe now you need a CFO. And, um, the skill set of a CFO is going to be what takes you to the next level of performance. Um, and then they're, you know, they're going to know some things that somebody else may not because they work somewhere else or at a bigger company. And um, that's what we're starting to see is a lot of those conversations playing out. Uh, I would say operationally the same thing. A lot of folks are getting hired away from bigger companies to come in and work at the family owned, privately owned companies. And they bring the experience of um, 
large companies out in the marketplace and uh, you know, like a Home Depot or even maybe even other transportation companies. And all of a sudden, somebody who ran a two-state or three-state region you know, is running the sales team for a family-owned company. And it's just, you know, they've just seen so much more. And uh, they're looking, you know, these companies are looking for that experience. Um, back to what we talked about, you know, these people are also looking for companies that have that culture of caring and the culture of a family-owned business. So, yeah, we're seeing a lot more of these conversations happen for sure. And we're seeing a lot more movement of um, people coming into these these locally owned, family owned, privately held businesses um, more than ever. To kind of build off that, I, I do wonder, we sit here in five years and you know we look back at the COVID period and I think what, what I've seen and probably what everybody else has seen is, you know, there's certain family owned businesses that during COVID decided, you know what, I, I really do wanna buckle down and keep this in the family. Or I, I want to keep it private. You know, what I built is special. You know, our future is positive. I, I really want to do that. Then there's that, the other group that said, you know, heck, I, I'm not sure I want to do this anymore. And so I do wonder how these statistics will change, if they will, if we sit here in another five years because of the impact of 2020 to 22, maybe, maybe bleeding into 23. Uh, Steve, I, I certainly saw that with some companies where, you know, had the pen pandemic not happened, um, they wouldn't have sold, but they got to a point where, you know, a lot of us scratched our heads and looked in the mirror and said, well, you know, what are we doing? Why are we doing it? And what does life look like? And, and could it look different? And, and we definitely saw some companies pivot yeah. and, and sell because they could, they were in a good spot and it was just, they were done. Yeah. I think the pandemic just made everyone pretty much say why and decisions had to be made. Um, for, for better or for worse. But we're, we're coming up on time. Thank you for hosting us. Scott Radcliffe at Angleham Brighton Davies, great place of Lancaster, and Scott Berkey. It's been, it's been a pleasure to hear about you and, and all the work you've done at uh, the High Center. So thank you so much for joining us. Material and opinions voiced are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what is appropriate for you, please contact a member of our team.